The scripture reading for this message is from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants, nor the one who waters, is anything but God who causes growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, here's Dr. Hunter with today's message. Today we start the third part of the sermon series about Eden and about the purposes, the five avenues of purpose, rather, that God revealed in Eden that went wrong and that are restored in Jesus Christ. Today we want to talk about work. Let me say something that may surprise you, but I want you to think about it. I believe that Christians are better off now than we were in the Garden of Eden. I believe that, at least as far as work goes, that we have the advantage over Adam and Eve if we are looking for the participation of God in our everyday life. Now, most people moan because they got us kicked out of the Garden of Eden. But all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And I believe that if you listen today, you will see perhaps a reason why God allowed that to happen. First of all, let me take you back and let me show you what we talked about in the Garden of Eden uh, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, I want you to notice that work was not a part of the curse. It was part of the blessing of paradise. Work occurred way before we got kicked out of the garden. It was part of God's blessing. Second of all, I want you to see that work was a contribution. It was not the earning of what we needed for God's provision. God's provision was there. He could eat of any tree of the garden. He didn't have to earn it. All of his livelihood was there. God supplied all of his riches in glory. All right? All of his needs according to his riches in glory. God's riches in glory. So therefore, work was a contribution without having to earn what was basic to the joy of life. But the limitation of Adam was that the most he could do was the planting and watering, which is also mentioned in 1 Corinthians 3, 
And God giving the growth, the most he could do was every day to go and keep that garden in order for God. He could perform his life and his service for God as an offering to God. And the most fellowship he could hope for was every day, Genesis 3.8, God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And he could have that conversation with God and have fellowship with God. Now that's pretty neat. But we've got something neater. And I'll tell you what it is in just a minute. First of all, though, let me tell you the second step. What happened when we got kicked out of the garden? If you look in Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 to 5, you will see that man began to believe that his effort in work and by the way, when we talk about work, we're not talking about employed, unemployed. We're not talking about what you get paid for, what you don't get paid for. We're talking about any effort that contributes to the world and contributes to the world in God's way. That's work. That's legitimate work, okay? So it doesn't matter whether you're a student or whether you're a homemaker or whether you're uh, you know, a CEO. It doesn't matter. Work is work. But what happened? When we got kicked out of the Garden of Eden... The boys, I was calling them the boys, the boys decided that the scenario of the world had changed and that now they had to earn their provision. And now, what they did to earn it was of their own glory. And they lost the point that God was still providing their living. And they believed it was all on their effort that their living was provided. And so they got angry. When God refused their offering, when God said, you know, boys, there's some things you can't earn. When God said to Cain, Cain brought that offering of grain, and God had no regard for it. And Cain was mad, see? And God was saying, Cain, son, there's some things you can't earn. And people still get mad when they work hard for something, and it doesn't come out the way they thought it would, especially if it's a blessing from God. And if you don't think that's true, go to any funeral home in town and go in and listen to the conversation about where that guy is going afterwards and on the basis of what. In any funeral home, this will be the conversation. Well, I know he's going to heaven because he was such a good man. Now, you may have a few exceptions of a scoundrel and people who are honest and say, man, I wouldn't want to be in his shoes right now. You may have that. But if you walk in and tell most people, you can't get to heaven by being good. They will be furious with you. You mean to tell me I worked all my life and get to heaven and that's not enough? Exactly. See? It's exactly what we mean to tell you. Holy cow, would that make you mad if you'd spent all your life working and only to find out that there's some things you can't earn? Well, you can't earn God's grace. It's a gift. He gives it to you. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that you could just say, and accept God's grace in faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's it. It's as simple as that. Now, so here we are in a world all caught up in our own effort and believing that we can earn things we can't earn and get mad at God because He doesn't deliver on time. Now, what else we got? We got another big problem in the world. And the, and the other big problem is the way the church developed the church began to make artificial divisions in the world. 
especially the old Roman Catholic Church, medieval Catholic Church, began to tell us that life was divided between soul and body, and of course soul was more important. And life was divided between secular and sacred, and of course sacred was more important. And life was divided between clergy and laity, and of course clergy was more important. And life was divided between, you know, and they, they, you know, we went on down the line. Life was divided between work and between devotion. Of course, devotion was more important, see? Those divisions have built up in our minds, and we still assume this hierarchical view of the world. And you know what? It doesn't exist in God's world. Do you think that you can spend most of your life, and that's what most of us spend our life, most of our time on, is work, The average middle executive, 77% middle executives spend 50 hours a week or more at their jobs. And those of you who work in the home spend twice that much in your work. Do you really believe that God cares more for your hour or two in church than he does what you're doing the rest of the time? Man, that's not a sovereign God. That's a picky God. God cares for all of it, and all of it is important. Max Weber, in his classic uh, Protestant work ethic, said the Reformation was the time when the church rediscovered that God cared about daily life, and he cared more about transforming the world than transcending the world. And he cared more about having dominion every day than he cared about just just hearing people when they got in a religious mood. That's my translation, but that's what he said. Milton, in Paradise Lost, says this, Man hath his daily work of body or mind appointed, which declares his dignity and the regard of heaven for all his ways. God cares for it all. And you can't divide it up into which is holy and which is not holy, according to the gifts that some people have been given. I heard a story once, I think it's true, somebody told me as if it were true, about this man that was going down the street and he saw a bricklayer putting up the walls of a church. Stop to talk. You know, they used to do that in the old days. We can still do it these days, by the way. Stop to talk. Talking to this guy and he asked his name and his last name happened to be the same last name as the bishop in the area. He said, you know you've got the same last name as the bishop? The man said, yeah, I know he's my brother. He looked at him and he kind of grinned. He said, well, God really gave you different talents, didn't he? And the guy said, yeah, my poor brother can't lay a brick to save his life. (laughs) Now let me ask you a question. Which do you think of those two brothers had the holier work? can't say, can you? Both of them were equal in building up God's world. God had a regard for both of them. Both of their works were appointed. You understand? So therefore, you can't say, God doesn't care about what I do. He is involved in what you do. He does care about what you do. And God wants to be a part of what you do. Now, Come on with me some more and let me explain to you this scripture. Not only does God say that your work is important, this scripture in 1 Corinthians 3, 
Not only does God say that your work is important, but He says there's a major mistake that many of us make when it comes to work. And that is we either look at people or we look at success and notice people or notice success and we don't notice Him. Look at these verses. And brethren, I could not speak to you as spiritual men. Now he's talking about the past. When I first came to you, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual men. And the word here, the Greek word, is sarkonois. And anos as a suffix means made up of. It's, it's, it's part of the uh, content. And so when he says, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual men, but as flesh, that's sarkonois, as to babes in Christ, the first time he says that, there's no accusation involved. He just said that's where you were developmentally. You were babies. You were brand new. And he can't expect a baby to, 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 to uh, understand spiritual things. So there's no blame here. When I first came to you, I couldn't speak to you spiritual things. And so it says what he did. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, now here the worm turns. Even now, you are not able. Now, time has passed, and they've been given time to grow up here. And Paul gets in a mood like Hebrews 5, where it says, Man, you ought to be past these elemental things. Even now, you're not able to receive it. Now, look at what he says. For you are still fleshy. And the word here is sarkakos. It's a different suffix that means you are letting now your nature dominate your spirit. You are choosing not to understand. Before you couldn't understand, now you don't understand. You won't understand because you don't look. You've decided to look at this thing in a natural way, in a human way, in a worldly way. And that's been your decision. And look what else he says. For, there, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. Look at this line. As the Lord gave opportunity to each one. It looked like it was Paul and Apollos doing the work. It was the Lord doing the work. They were just standing there at the time. Now, read on with me. He says, I planted. See, Paul's writing this. I planted. Apollos watered. But God was causing the growth. See the imagery of Eden here? So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. But God who causes the growth. See how many times he keeps going back to God? Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive according to his own reward, according to his own labor. But we are God's fellow workers. And you are God's field and building. Now, I want to tell you three things real quick. First of all, I want to tell you that if you look at your work right now, whatever it is, whether it's being a student, whether it's being a, a, a homemaker, whether it's working uh, for pay in the world, whatever your work is, if it's volunteer work, it, whatever your work is, if you look at your work and you see, number one, people... And number two, whether or not it's succeeding, you are looking as baby Christians. Now, that's okay for some of you because some of you are new at this stuff and you don't know any better. 
But for those of you who have walked in the Lord for a while, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Don't I look like my mother? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You know better. Theoretically, you know that God is involved in that. Theoretically, you know that it is God who is involved in your life and involved in that situation. Good grief, He's not exiled from there. That's part of His world. What's God doing in that situation? Look to that. If you look simply to men and their efficiency, you've missed the point. Last weekend I did a a wedding in Indiana. I preached at at our sister church up there, Community Church of Greenwood, and I did a wedding of a gal that I loved. And we've been through some real rough times together. And it's just neat how God honors faithfulness. He really does. And so it was a joyous time. Her fiancé is a baby Christian. And he came out there with all of his, uh, his comrades from the Air Force Academy. They're all Air Force pilots, fighter jet pilots. And it was impressive. I'll tell you what, I've never, I never did, I've never done a military wedding. I mean, uh, but these guys walk in, they're all in uniform, and they're walking in just, and they got these sabers. We did the saber thing, you know, and they do the cross the sabers and the things. Boy, it was impressive. Sharp, sharp. And I got to talk with these guys a little bit. And these guys are competent with a capital C. I mean, these are the guys that are defending our nation. I felt very safe after I talked with them. (laughs) I did. Very safe. Competent with a capital C. But they did not have a clue as to what God was doing in the world. Not a clue. And I thought, you know what? They're not any worse off than 90% of the church. 90% of the church comes, hears a religious message, and Monday morning go out in the world and they can't see God anywhere. They haven't got a clue of what God's doing in the world. But yet, we're the Christians. Do you know what? God needs to be involved in the details or even the worship is severely limited. Let me tell you, when I began to come to Christ, the first inkling I had of coming to Christ, seriously coming to Christ, now I'd gone to church all my life. I got a religious Methodist grandmother. And when you got a religious Methodist grandmother, you go to church and you sit in the same pew every Sunday. Thank you very much. And you listen to big long words and those sermons and you watch fruit on ladies' hats and... Yeah. See the ushers, you know, bankers and all this. Boy, it was cool. I liked it. I liked it. She used to give me those little cellophane uh, butterscotch wrappers, and I'd go do this the whole service. <laughs> whole, whole place lit up. Looked like sunshine. See, and I'd, I'd know the ladies, you know, Mrs. Fish. She looked like a fish. She did. Always wore fruit on her hand. Well, it was enjoyable. Well, don't get me off on that now. Where was I? Oh, yeah. I'd had that background, but the first serious inkling I got that Christianity was more than Sunday morning was a buddy I had. See, I was as pagan as you get. Don't ever let my grandmother know this when you get to heaven. But when I was as pagan, and and part of my paganity (laughs) was my language. I I mean, I had it down to an art form. I could hardly... I was bilingual. I had, I had English and cussing. cussing. Cussing's a whole language in itself, by the way. 
I mean, you can't, you can know the words, but there's a certain rhythm that goes to it. There's certain things that go together. It's an art. It really is. And I was well developed in this art, and so was my buddy Mike Armstrong Army. See? And we'd walk to school and we'd just cuss. We'd cuss back and forth. See? It's a big deal. Cuss back and forth. And, and, and one day we're walking to school and I'm just cussing, you know, I'm trying to hone the words, you know, and get them to go back. He's silent. And pretty soon he starts talking English. Well, see, I didn't think much of that because everybody can go straight for a day. And, you know, we'd repented many times then going right back to it. And, but then he was not cussing the second day and the third day. And finally I got in his face, you know, because it makes a sinner real nervous when somebody won't sin with them. You know that? I mean, you always want people to sin with you. You don't care if it's exact your same sin, but it's got to be some sin. Or, or it just makes you real nervous. And he wasn't doing any sin at all. And I said, Army, what's up with you? And he said, well, you know Bill Jewell. Bill's, Bill Jewell's dad was a preacher. And he said, I went to church with Bill Jewell and, and I gave my life to Christ. Well, I thought that was all right. You know, sinners are tolerant people. They, they are. I don't know why it is that sinners are so tolerant and Christians are so prune-faced about everything. I don't know why that is. But you've got to be a real mature Christian before you become tolerant. But right at first, you just uh, want to get in a fight with everybody. But I wasn't a Christian yet. I was just a basic sinner. And just about anything's okay with a sinner. So I said, okay, I'll tolerate that Christianity business. You don't have to cuss with me. I'll just go ahead and do solo cussing. So we were walking. I'd solo cuss, you know, for a while. But I was feeling real uncomfortable. And we always stopped for, uh, uh, in Ohio it's called pop. Down here it's called soda. But in Ohio you call it pop. We could stop for popping chips, see? And Army didn't have any money for that. And I said, well, Army, where's your money? He said, well, I'm tithing. I'm giving 10% of my money to the Lord. Well, now I knew there was something serious wrong here. Because you can stop cussing, but you start giving 10% to the Lord and you've made a turnaround. And, but even that, even that, I was okay, see? Because that recorded, okay, you, when you're a Christian, you become a good person and you give to the work of the Lord. I can, I can buy all that, you know. Moral reform fits in the picture. But here's what didn't fit in the picture. And here's what stuck in my craw until I decided to give my life to Christ. Army started doing his homework. <laughs> now, there's no sense in that whatsoever. Because there's another art form that's developed as you go along, and that's how to get out of doing your homework and never get discovered. I mean, students have this down. You remember it? There's a certain, there, there are wonderful excuses you can have. And if you're real creative, you can think up all kinds of new excuses that surprise yourself. It's not necessary to do your homework if you don't want to. There are ways you can sit in class to be the most... I mean, I, we used to practice this too. You don't sit in class and just with your head down when you haven't got your homework done because that's too obvious. What you do is you wait for other people to raise their hand and you raise your hand just after it, just as she's calling on somebody else. So you don't look so... See, there's an art to this. And I knew he didn't have to do his homework. He was doing his homework. Well, see, I didn't understand that at all because that wasn't in my box of Christianity. You mean to tell me you have to work harder at stuff that's not even related to church? And another thing that was bothering me is Army was no great shakes as an athlete. We played football together, and he, was, he had no natural ability. 
So there, were, there was very little hope that Army would ever be a good football player, and he knew it. And he used to clown around. He was, he was a, kind of the football clown. I mean, you know when you're not a very good football player, but you kind of like to hang around with the guys. So you go out, and you turn your helmet around backwards and run around, everybody laughs. See? That's pretty neat. And that's what Army did. But all of a sudden, every day in practice, nobody was working harder than Mike Armstrong. There was no hope to make a successful football athlete out of this guy. But you never saw anybody work harder than he. That stuck in my craw. I mean, I probably could have avoided the cussing and I could have avoided the tithing. But when Army started working on his homework and working on his football, that didn't make sense. Why? Because most Christians do not connect work with faith. And it is connected. Now, let me tell you two more things. First of all, there is a tremendous change in the efficiency of your work when you work with God instead of for God. When you partner with God. What does Scripture say? We are co-laborers with Christ. Doesn't it? Turn to Matthew chapter 11. Let me show you a neat passage. Not only are we to look for God in our work and to what He is doing in the lives of people so that we can cooperate, but we are to look for God to be our partner, our senior partner. Verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, And I will give you rest. Now, how is he going to give them rest? Watch this. Take my yoke upon you. Whoops. What? You're going to give me rest by working me? See, yoke is an instrument of work. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my load is light. Those of you who've been raised on a farm know what a yoke is. It's it's a it's a crossbar with two hoops on it. I don't know what those hoops are called. Somebody said they're called keys. Anybody know what those hoops are? What they're called? Are they keys? Thanks. Okay. Good enough, huh? <laughs> keys or the round things that hook on to the crossbar. Anyhow, let's not get too technical. Um In the old days, there was a big key and a smaller key. Because when you paired two animals, you didn't pair two animals of the same strength or the same maturity or the same development. You always paired a stronger, more mature oxen with a weaker, less mature oxen so that the weaker one could learn from the stronger one. And by the way, when they were doing the work, guess which one pulled most of the load? Stronger one. That's right. And when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, he is saying, you think you can be efficient without me? Or you think you can be a partner with me? No, no, no. When we yoke up, guess who's going to be doing most of the work? And guess who's going to be learning from me? You know, this was a giant disappointment to me to my pride 
when I finally figured this out, that all the great stuff I thought I'd been doing in the world, God was really doing it, and I was just showing up. I had a, an incident when I was playing football, as a matter of fact, that showed me, though, that it was true. I was uh, the other guard. On offense, I played guard, and the other guard was named Big Ed Thurman. And Big Ed was just that. As small as I was, I was the littlest guy on the team, even back then, pitiful. But Big Ed was one of the biggest guys on our team, if not the biggest guy, and we were the guards. We looked like Mutt and Jeff. Well, we had this thing called a two-man sled, a blocking sled that the coach stands on and he whistles. And when he whistles, you have a contest. You pair up and you have a contest to see who can drive it the farthest and the fastest. And Big Ed, uh, Big Ed and I won often. Most of the time, we won. And I walked around, it's pretty, pretty proud, you know. It's, yeah, we won. Big Ed and I won. We, we, we're the fastest. We, we won. One day, we were doing that drill. Sure enough, he blew that whistle. We smacked it and we took off driving that sled. And we were driving him. must have been 80 miles an hour. <laughs> it seemed like it. When you're down there looking at the ground, it looks like 80 miles an hour. Well, in Ohio, you don't always have the best football practice field. You kind of have pastures sometimes. And I just stepped in a hole. I just dropped off. Dropped completely down on my face. And I thought on the way down, well, there goes this contest. I looked up, and guess what? Big Ed was driving that sled all by himself every bit as fast as both of us had been driving it. It was just curving my way a little bit. I came to the horrifying realization that all that time I'd not really been driving that sled. I'd just kind of been guiding it a little. The rest of the work was all Big Ed. Guess what? When you're paired with, when you're a co-laborer with Christ, you think you're doing all that work? It's God who's doing the work. It's Him who ought to get the glory. It's Him who's making for the changes. And so therefore, please notice that the effectiveness of your work has somewhat to do with you. I mean, you're in there somewhere, but it's not a large part of the formula. If you're a Christian, it's God who's making changes through you. And one more point. In Scripture, it says this, that we are the field of God. In Philippians, it, it says... Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work, what? In you. This imagery is constant in the Bible. That while we are putting forth effort, there is something happening inside of us that is beyond the results, that is beyond the relationship with God. Now, let me say something to you that you will only understand probably in the future because we'll get to this someday. As a matter of fact, I believe all of Christendom will get past what we have relied upon as relational theology for the last 30 years. Relational theology is wonderful, and it's true, and it's a good image. But relational theology does not begin to go to the depths of what sanctification really is. Because there's something deeper and something higher than just our relationship with God. When you realize that it is God who is involved in your work, and when you begin to recognize that He's involved and give Him the glory, and when you begin to rejoice that it is God who is doing all of that, 
Something happens in you that is not apart from your relationship, but it is distinct in your relationship. Let me tell you a modern day parable and then I'll quit. Well, I'm not doing too bad. Let me tell you a modern day parable. There was a woman who wanted to be married. She dreamed of married life and how happy she would be. And so she found a bow and decided this was the right one. From all appearances, it really was. But after they were married, she found that he was really a very harsh taskmaster. She found that in order to avoid conflict, she must get up every day at 5. She must have his breakfast ready at 6 o'clock. She must perform all of the duties of, you know, ironing T-shirts and having the sheets just right and all of that stuff for the rest of the day. Now, some of you are sitting there saying, well, in a pig's eye. But that's what she desired to do because that's what she believed God wanted her to do in order to honor this man to whom she was married. And there were so many things to do, she'd have to write a list so that she could get them all done in one day so that he wouldn't have anything to get angry about. He was a very disturbed person. And she was an enabler, and that's the way they lived. It wasn't a fun marriage. But in a way, for where she was, she loved him as best as she could, and in a way, for where he was, he loved her to the maximum of his own development up to that point. Well, surprisingly, he died one day. And she grieved, but in some ways she was relieved to be real about it. A few years later, she met another man. And she decided maybe this was the right man. So she got married to him. And they absolutely had a ball together. They laughed together. They talked about serious issues together. They um, did fun things together. They, they enjoyed life. They learned together. One day she was in the closet and she was going through memorabilia. She brought out an old shoebox with old pictures and there were pictures of her old husband in there and she had the funniest feeling, you know, remembering that relationship. And she reached in and brought out an old list that she had saved of things that she had to get done on a certain day. She had the funniest feeling as she looked at that list, but she was very surprised to see that she had done every one of those things for her new husband that day. The exact same list was done, but she never connected it with work or drudgery. The relationship with her husband made all the difference. The joy and the freedom made all the difference. And she could do what was required in her mind of being a good wife with a sense of freedom and grace. But there was a third point that surprised her even more. Before I get to the third point, let me say to you 
that I believe that one of the images that would fit into that parable is the image of the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. They are not two different people. They are the same God. But our picture of God in the Old Testament was a very harsh taskmaster who in order to please him and in order to gain his favor, in order to earn his blessings, there's that word again, we had to get this X amount done and we were in trouble if we didn't. And of course the God of the New Testament in Christ is pictured as someone who doesn't change the standards. Sure does make it fun. It's an attitude of grace. And if you fail, you fail. And it's it's an attitude of inviting you back to repent so that you can enjoy that relationship again. But the deepest point of this parable came with her realization that in her relationship with her husband, she had developed within her own heart all the way along a character of Christ that served no matter what in order to love as best she could. She did it in the rough times as well as the good times. She did it when she didn't enjoy it as well as when she did enjoy it. And that, my friends, is sanctification. It's something built into your nature that you have the nature of God. And it's a wonderful thing. Glory be to God, we're in that new relationship. Glory be to God, He's building that us in us right now. Pray with me. God, help us to see that all of our lives are yours. That you don't divide them up and neither can we, even though we try. Help us to see that you are active in the details, in the everyday. Help us to look for you and to you so that we can see at the end of our life something you have built in us beyond just our relationship together. Something of the nature of Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. It was a lonely road you walked But you did it just for me And I can't understand How you let your hand be pierced upon the tree It was a heavy cross you wore Down that ancient dusty street And I can't explain How you took the pain Upon your wrath
go from here looking to God in the details living every bit of our lives for him but also with him go in peace